Uh, We're in Romans chapter 2 today, so uh, be finding the book of Romans. Uh, Last week, last Sunday morning, we saw how Paul is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. He says in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So he wants to get to Rome and preach the gospel, which is the righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift through faith and not works. Amen? That's the gospel. Justification by faith. And he's pointing out that the Roman society, Romans chapter 1 verse 18, is under the wrath of God. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. And then he starts showing uh, what a society looks like that is under the wrath of God. One thing is they turn from their creator. You see that in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 1. What is What can be known about God is plain, verse 20, his invisible attributes, his power and divinity is seen since the creation of the world. But they turned from that and worshipped, verse 23, uh, man, birds, animals, creeping things, anything except God. So what does a society under the wrath of God look like? Well, it's a, it's a society that turns from creation to evolution, where God is not creator, God is not a factor. It also, uh, Paul also shows how that a society under the wrath of God is a society where men and women lust for those of the same sex. Verse 26 For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. That's Romans 1.27. This is a society that Paul says, Romans 1.18, is uh, under the wrath of God. And the proof of it is, he says, look at the way they worship dogs and cats and animals and people and they elevate everything up instead of God. And then he says they are passionate about sex and it's a sex-soaked society in which even men go after the men and the women go after the women. And finally he says there's a comprehensive chaos a total breakdown in society. Look at chapter 1, verse 29. And they were all filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and so on. So it's just comprehensive. It permeates sin and evil. And Paul says this is a society. This is what it looks like when a society has been given over to its own sins. But then you come to chapter 2, and he starts out in chapter 2 by saying, therefore you have no excuse, chapter 2, verse 1, 
O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same things. It's going to be interesting um, as we look at chapter 2 because there's quite a distinction between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, give me the, that list. That, this, these are the, the ways I would identify the distinctions between these two chapters. In one, uh, chapter 1, you will have noticed, if you were with me last Sunday, that verse 21, they knew God and they did not honor him and they became futile. They became fools, chapter 1, verse 22. So it's, it's third person. He's talking about a group, not the one he's writing to. But then in chapter 2, you have no excuse, chapter 2, verse 1. You who judge, chapter 3, do you suppose, O oh man, you, <clears throat> you who judge those who practice such things? So here he's changed the second person uh, where he's talking to the people. Remember, he's writing to Rome, to the church in Rome. And and it would be easy for Paul to say, oh, those people outside, oh yeah, they're a mess. And everybody's sitting in there saying, amen. They definitely are. And the, the non-religious, well, this is the religious group. They judge those on the outside. And, then, and this is also, in chapter 1, those are the people without the law. Well, in chapter 2, these are people with the law. You'll even notice uh, that he's talking to the Jewish group that is in that Roman church. Because there were quite a few Jewish Christians in that uh, first century Roman church. And so he says in chapter 1, Uh, or in chapter 2, verse 17, you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. That's chapter 2, verse 18. See, that group had the law. And in chapter 1, they were already under the wrath of God. It was revealed from heaven. They were suffering the consequences of their sins. In chapter 2 you'll find that Paul warns chapter 2 group that there is a judgment to come. And just because that's in uh, chapter 2 and verse 4, the riches of, you're presuming on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Chapter 2 verse 5, because of your hard heart, you're storing up wrath on the day of wrath. So there's a future day they're under it. For them, it's yet to come. So that's, the, that's kind of the categories. And so I would say that basically it is the moral church group, the Romans, and especially in that Roman church, a Jewish segment that Paul is writing to in Romans chapter 2. So... Do they have a judgment? Do they need to fear a judgment? And Paul is going to argue, he's going to proclaim that the people of chapter 2 
are not just also under the scrutiny of Almighty God, but more so because they have the law. They are enlightened. They are instructed. They know more. So Paul is going to say, look, you know, don't think you're off the hook. You may not be uh, the group in chapter 1 where their lives are a mess and their misery is deep and their darkness is impenetrable. But he says, look at your life. And then he, he, he nails down three particular sins of theirs. This starts... Um, I'm going to start reading in verse 17 of chapter 2. Romans 2, 17, he says, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law, and you're sure that you're a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, verse 20, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, Then, verse 21, you who teach others, do you teach yourself? He says, and he gives three illustrations in verse 21 and 22 of how those, especially the Jews, under the law were violating the law. Verse 21, you who teach others, do not teach yourself. While you preach against stealing, there's one, and it's actually a continual tense. You preach against stealing, do you continually steal? Verse 22, you say you must not commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? That's the second one. Then the third one, you abhor idols, but do you rob temples? Let me point these three things out to you. He says, then, you who preach to not steal, do you steal? Well, One of the things that the Pharisees would do and first century Jews would do is they would pressure widows. Of course, their husbands have died. They have no one to oversee them. So they would come in and under a pretense of taking care of them and having compassion for them, they would pressure them into signing their houses and property over to them when they died. And Jesus mentions this in Luke twenty forty seven when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are the ones who devour widows' houses. And what he means is that they are pressuring these widows and sometimes they would uh, try to get them ahead of time and they'd put this pressure on them. Jesus said, you may not come out and just with a gun rob a bank, but you're, the way you're doing business is unethical and you are robbing those people the second one here is adultery verse 22 he says you who say that one must not commit adultery do you commit adultery well the way they were doing this is that first century Pharisees uh, had such lax divorce laws that you could get a divorce for any reason You could get a divorce, for example, if your wife burned the biscuits one morning. And and, uh, you say, I didn't like burned biscuits. I was reminding Jan 
this week of when we first got married, and uh, she is making uh, mashed potatoes and gravy, and she brought me the mashed potatoes in a bowl. And I said, <laughs> I said, am I supposed to eat this, or am I supposed to drink it through a straw? I'm not sure here. But that was grounds for divorce in the first century. But you could even divorce your wife if you found someone prettier. As long as the rabbis gave the permission. They had what's called the Beth uh, Din, the house of judgment. You go to the rabbis, they pronounce you uh, permissible to be divorced. So Jesus says... Uh, and this is in Matthew 19.3, they came to Jesus and they said, here was their question, can I divorce my wife for any reason? (laughs) Wow! Any reason I want to. And Jesus took them back to Matthew 19.3 when he said, in the beginning, this was not so. God made male and female, put them together for life. That was the ideal of the book of Genesis. So they were, by their maneuverings, committing adultery and finding grounds for it in theology and in their peers. The third one he says here in verse 23, you who boast in the law, or in verse 22, the last statement, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And I wasn't sure exactly what that meant. It's temples, plural, so it wasn't the main Jewish temple. But in Rome, here's what they were doing. Jewish men would go to all these pagan temples, and they had 150-some pagan temples. And the Jewish men would break in, rob the place of these idols made out of metal, take the metal and sell it. And uh, so this is what Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us. And it was so bad that Rome actually passed a law putting the death penalty upon anybody who broke into a Jewish temple. So this is what these Jewish men were doing. And Paul said, just because you're robbing a pagan temple, it's still robbing. So in the maneuverings that you've done in your mind... You have yourself violated God's law. And he nails them with that. You who preach don't steal. The way you're doing this is stealing from the most vulnerable in society, the widows. And you who preach don't commit adultery, but you just tossed off your wife of your youth as if she was nothing and took up with a younger woman. And you who say, don't, don't rob, don't, don't make sacrilege against temples, you're breaking into temples, stealing stuff, and taking off with them so that the world doesn't even approve of it. So this is the way he does, the, the way he approaches it. And look at what he says in verse 23 and 4. You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by the way you're breaking the law. Verse 24, for as it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Wow. God got a bad reputation 
because the Jews said they know him, he's our God, but by their behavior and the way they were living, they gave God a bad name. They made him look bad. I was with a, uh, I was with Jan this week. We had gone to Grand Rapids and doing uh, some shopping, and we were at Penny's, and there was this lady there. Uh, it was pretty busy, and so we were in line, and I could tell, you know, she was kind of hassled because there were some people in another line, and nobody was helping them. So she was trying to watch that line and help us, and she really gave us quality time and helped us save uh, 15% upon our final bill. She was really helpful, very courteous, and very industrious and sensitive to other people around her. I was so impressed with her. And uh, so when we, le- when we left, I said to her, um, I said, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, I thought so. Uh, she made Jesus look good. Amen? And then I was in a uh, coffee shop a few months ago, and I had a bunch of books stacked up, and um, I hit them wrong, and a couple of them fell off the front, so they were down in the floor, and I thought, I'll get them when I leave. And, <laughs> well, it's kind of hard to get out of the booth. And uh, so I continued my studies, and this young lady got up from all the way across the other the side of the room and came over. She picked up my books, didn't say anything, just set them up on my table and went back to her seat. And I thought, that's so courteous. And so on my way out, because I left first, I stopped at her table and I said, I, I wanted to thank you for picking up my books. And I said, are you a Christian? <laughs> she said, yes, I am. And I thought, amen, you make Jesus look good. So if y'all do something nice for me, I'm probably going to say, are you a Christian? (laughs) Because, hey, I'll tell you what, folks, we can make Jesus look bad. Amen? I've been around enough people to make him, that made him look bad. So, so here's what Paul is saying to these people. He's saying, look, you're making God look bad as the scriptures said. He quotes Isaiah 52 verse 5. The name of God is blasphemed because of you. That's the kind of life that you're living, and then you're going to say to me, Paul says, that we're going to be okay at the judgment. Uh, That's not going to work. Because remember where Paul is headed. Paul is not saying that you're going to be better off because you have the law, know the law, you're Jewish, you've got a moral background, you're in the church, you don't need Jesus as much, and you don't need the gospel as much. No, here's where he's headed. Let me just flip over here to it. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. This is the conclusion of his argument. I think we have this. Yeah. Here's, Here's where he's going with his argument. Chapter 3, verse 9. What then, that is, what's the conclusion? Are we Jews any better off, better off than the Gentiles in chapter 1? No, not at all. For we have already charged or proven or shown you 
that all, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside, and no one does good, not even one. He's saying, look, in chapter 1, I'm eager to preach the gospel in Rome because look at the people in Rome. What a mess they are. What their lives look like. What misery. What depravity. He says, so I'm eager to get to Rome because those, on, boy, those sinners need it, don't they? And the people in the church would have said, amen, Paul. And then Paul says, and you know what else? You need the gospel, which is the righteousness of God imputed as a gift, not works. You need it as much or more than they because you have light and you know things that they don't know but when you stand before God God turns his microscope on you and looks into the details and the secret places of your heart you're going to stand before God and you're going to cry out oh my works are not enough so Paul is saying you need it too because I have shown Paul says both Jew and Gentile are both under sin there is none good none righteous no not one Then he's going to come in chapter 3 to an exposition of the gospel. But he first lays the groundwork in chapter 1 and chapter 2 by showing that all are under sin. And the Jew, because of the knowledge of the law, will be worse off, and he will perish with the law just as they perish without the law. The way he puts it, in Romans chapter 2 verse 12 is all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Uh, in other words, that's chapter 1. That's the group in chapter 2, in, in, in chapter 1. They, they don't have the law, they'll perish without the law. But now notice, they still perish. Amen? Their judgment is not as great because they're without the law. They're without the knowledge, but they still perish. And then he says, those all have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's Romans 2.12. So the Jew and the moral man, his judgment will be even greater. There's one other thing, though, in chapter 2 that I wanted to point out. Uh, It's it's the, the Jewish confidence in being circumcised. Circumcision goes all the way back to Genesis 17 with uh, Abraham. And you might even remember that Moses was going to, was called to go and deliver Israel. And on his way, he forgot or neglected to circumcise his own son. And God met him, and Moses almost died because he hadn't circumcised his son. and, And his wife stepped in, circumcised him, and saved him. So circumcision, both in the Bible and in the first century Judaism, was very serious stuff. There is a commentary on the Old Testament uh, from the Jews in the first century called the Midrash. And this is a statement from the Midrash. It says, Abraham, who is the father of us all, sits at the gates of hell to examine every Jew so that no circumcised Jew will ever enter hell. So they put a lot of confidence in circumcision. It'd be like us, if uh, if we believe this, it'd be like saying, look, you're baptized. 
Now, no matter what happened, no matter what you do, or whether you blaspheme Christ and turn your back on and become apostate, you've been baptized. So baptism from then on, the Baptist society will see that you get to heaven. We're going to stand at the gates of hell and make sure, hey, just are you baptized? Show me your certificate. Good, you can go to heaven. Paul says, now circumcision, so he has to deal with that before he can move on. Chapter 2, verse 25. He says some incredible things here. Verse 25, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. If you break the law, circumcision becomes uncircumcision. He says, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the law, verse 26, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcised? What Paul is saying is that the circumcision was a symbol of the covenant or the law which God made with Israel. And they were meant to go together Circumcision and the covenant went together. In other words, circumcision was the symbol of being a covenant person. But they were never separated. If you didn't keep the covenant or disregarded the covenant, what's the point of circumcision? Paul says you might as well be uncircumcised. It's like, again, using baptism. Uh, Baptism is a symbol... And its significance is in the fact that you've put faith in Christ and you're saying that I'm standing with Christ and Christ is standing for me before the Father. You're putting your faith in Christ. Well, what's the point of baptism without the reality? So this is what Paul is saying here. What's the point of the token, the symbol of the covenant, if you don't keep the covenant that is the law? So that's the first thing is he connects it He said, you're putting too much trust in your circumcision. But another thing that he does here is Paul does something under the leading of the Holy Spirit that is amazing. He he defines a true Jew. Because even today, the Supreme Court of Israel cannot define a Jew. They started out by saying if you're Jewish ancestry and you're in Judaism, you can come. But they have now decided, the last that I understand, is that if you can show ancestry to Judaism, whether by DNA or however you want to do it, and you are, uh, but if you have embraced Jesus as Messiah, you are not a Jew. Even if you're a Jew, your mom and dad are Jews and grandparents are Jews and you can show yourself a descendant of Moses. But once you put faith in Jesus Christ, you're not a Jew. That's the Supreme Court of Israel. Now you can be an atheist, but if you can say, I am Jewish in culture and ancestry, but I'm an atheist, they'll say, you're Jewish. Well, Paul comes into this muddle of legal wrangling and under the leading of the Holy Spirit, he tells us what a Jew is. So show us some light here, Paul. Verse 28, chapter 2, verse 28. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. 
But a Jew, verse 29, is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Holy Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but God. In other words, a Jew has had the Holy Spirit cut his heart in conviction. That's a signal. And then his desire is to seek the approval of Almighty God in his life. His praise is not from man, but from God. God, what pleases you? What gives, gets your approval? That's a Jew. That's a true Jew. Because, see, the word Jew or Judah comes originally from Genesis 26 through 29, where Leah, Jacob's wife, has a fourth son named Judah. And she says, I'm going to praise the Lord and name him Judah, which means praise. And what Paul is saying under the leading of the Spirit is that the true Jew is not seeking the praise of men. I'm not seeking the approval of men. I don't know what the majority says. We must, not, we must disengage the peer pressure of this society. But we want to seek the approval of God. What does God say about the topics that are hotly debated today? I don't want to know what CNN talkers have to say. I want to know what does God approve because the true Jew is one whose heart has been cut by the Spirit. You see that in verse 29. He's inwardly a Jew. His matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter, and his praise is not from man but God. His approval is not from man but God. God, I want to be approved by you if I am not approved by anybody else. Amen. Paul says, that's Jewish. You belong to that great line of people of faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. And he goes right on through with David and Solomon, right on through with Isaiah and Micah and the prophets of God. Those are the people who sought the approval of God. That's the Jew. Now, he takes a digression in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, so I don't don't want to get distracted from it. I want to go right to uh, his primary point, Romans chapter 3, and I'll start with verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law, nobody will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes only knowledge of sin. Romans 3.21 But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been shown apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bore witness to it, they talked about it and predicted it. Romans 3.22 the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's where he's been headed. He laid the groundwork in chapter 1 by saying, I'm eager to get there to preach this gospel because look at the society. 
Then in chapter 2, he said, now don't forget that you who are Jews and you who are church members, he said, you need it as much as they do, if not more, because you have more light. And he showed that the Jew, even in circumcision, it's not true circumcision, you're not true Jew, you're not what God intended, unless your heart has been convicted and your, and your, and your, your passion is to seek the honor and approval of Almighty God. But he said, who can be this way? How do we get this way? There is a righteousness, Romans 3.21, that is apart from the law. It comes from God through Jesus Christ and faith in Him. It is immediate, full, permanent, eternal standing with God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. I was reading a couple of weeks ago, just finished a book uh, regarding World War II. And um, I'd been thinking about these. In in, uh, July of 1944, uh, there was an assassination attempt on Hitler, on his life. Uh, There was a movie out some time ago about it. uh, I forget the name of it. Valkyrie, yeah. And um, there were probably 15, maybe 20 guys involved. Um, And it didn't kill kill Hitler, but it hurt his arm, blew out an eardrum, but he he wasn't really hurt that bad. Then he set out on a mission to find every one of those guys, and he found them. They were all executed very slowly. That he hung them a little bit at a time, and he filmed it so he could get pleasure as he watched it later. All 15 or so of those the guys, then he went after their families. And then he went after the families of their families. And everybody who knew them, He killed 5,000 people who were somehow connected to that inner circle of a dozen men. When I read that, I thought, how does he find time to fight a war? And then, at the same time, if you go across the ocean here in the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt... He's our, he was our president in World War II. He had a series of ongoing affairs, one that lasted over 20 years with Lucy Mercer, who was actually with him when he died. And they had to scurry her out of there because all the family's coming in. And I was sharing this this morning at Bristol Road, and somebody said, you should check out Eleanor Roosevelt, his wife. And she had an affair with a lady named Lorraine Hickok. She, was, she had a lesbian affair. This is, this is while Hitler's killing all his enemies. FDR's over here, and his wife. Then if you go back across the sea to Great Britain, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who later became the president, he's the supreme allied commander. 
he was having an affair with a lady named Kay Summersby. And, and when the war was over, they would not issue her a travel permit to come to America because they didn't want it known. They even doctored the photographs she was in so as to remove her from his, present, from his history because he was going to run for president. Then, <laughs> do you want more of this? General Patton, who is said to have actually won the war because he was the first guy to actually cross the Rhine going into Germany, uh, he almost lost his wife in divorce because he had a girlfriend named Jean Gordon who was also seeing one of his soldiers. And when Patton found out about it, he put that soldier, like David and Uriah, he put that soldier on the front lines to fight the Germans. And I'm reading this stuff and I thought, God, are there no heroes? On the day of judgment, who's going to stand? There is a hero. It's not any of us. His name is Jesus. That's our hero. He was without sin. He was without inclination to evil. He was without revenge. He was a leader who was not unfaithful to his bride. Amen? And he loved her right to the end and giving his life for her, shedding his blood for her, rising again to give us a righteousness and a standing with God that is forever. Hallelujah to his name. Oh, there's a hero. But you will not find heroes worthy of worship in humanity. They've got to come from heaven. He came from heaven. The truth is, as Paul lays it out here, if you lift the lid on all of our lives, what you'll find is Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one, none seeks God, they've all turned aside, no one does good, not even one. Amen. But thank God there's a gospel. Thank God there's a gospel. So if you're here today and you're a sinner, this is good news for you. This is good news for you. Maybe you're like FDR. Or maybe you're like Eleanor. Man, I don't know. There's a gospel, Paul says. He starts out by saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel because that world is such a mess and the church is even worse because of its light that it has, I'm so eager to preach the gospel. I pray to preach the gospel. And praise God for it. We're going to pick this up again, and uh, you can be praying now that God will lead us and help us as we continue to seek to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We used to go through the great smoky mountains, and there would be a tunnel, and you'd go through it and be so dark, and people in there, they, they even had lights at the, along the sides so you could see a little bit. And uh, 
You'd get down deep and dark and people would honk their horns because the echo would go all over. And then you'd be there for a while and it'd be kind of scary and the kids would quit fighting and fussing with each other and suddenly you'd come out into the sunshine. And that's the way Romans chapter 3 is. You go through the darkness and despair of chapter 1, chapter 2, and then you come out in the beautiful sunshine and light of the gospel in chapter 3. So we look forward to God helping us as we unfold it. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow before you, we put our faith all over again in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his righteousness that prevails, that his grace is greater than our sin, that his love is greater than our unfaithfulness. We thank you there is a Savior and that we know who he is and that he's such a mighty God. He's such a hero to us. And we praise Him today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.